and welcome to episode 42 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR. And today we are joined by one of the true trailblazers in the gambling streets. This is a young man who reached the top of the high stakes online poker world about 15 years ago as Green Plastic. A young man who started one of the first poker training sites as in Card Runners. A young man who started the DFS site draft day been playing nosebleed stakes dfs since shutting that site down held the title of director of sportsbook for rustry gaming has his own wikipedia page for goodness sakes and now his greatest challenge yet helping evan and i on the business side of establishthrun.com it is of course taylor Kaby. taylor what's going on buddy thanks for the uh, introduction and i'm glad you called me a young man because that makes me feel good but i feel like i'm a grizzled veteran of the gambling uh industry but by, by now yeah we're gonna get into all that um i got to know or became aware of taylor when he was uh climbing to the top of kind of the heads up no limit world in 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 poker and then when he started card runners uh i got to know him a little bit there by doing actually an interview which is wild but i did an interview when one of my first jobs was at metro newspaper we ran like a, a gambling page and i was obviously into poker and and I did an interview with Taylor way back then and fast forward, I don't know, 12 years or something like that. And now we're working on establishing run together. So life comes full circle sometimes. Um, the goal of this pod, this interview, this discussion is just to talk through some of the industry stuff that's going on. Also get to Taylor's background, but talk through a lot of the industry stuff that's going on. Obviously, the state of DFS, daily fantasy sports, our outlook on sports betting, what to expect there going forward. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I think few people kind of have the same perspective that Taylor would on what's going on in gambling and DFS and sports as they would right now. I think that's fair to say, right, Taylor? Yeah, for sure. And like I said, you know, I've been in, in this industry for a long time and I've seen a lot. And one thing that just totally jumps out randomly, I was thinking of is, you know, you interviewing me 12 years ago, which I honestly don't even remember. And, uh, hearing you just you pursued like something you were interested in writing about gambling and sports for like a local newspaper that like didn't even have a website and is just like distributed for free in Philadelphia if if I'm not mistaken and now you know like so many people wouldn't be willing to pursue something like that I don't think and like wouldn't have any idea you know where it was going to go and frankly probably didn't think it was going to work out how it did but honestly like it's such a good learning lesson because like you put in the time like long before DFS even existed and started building up your knowledge and you know, here you are. So it's, it's cool to see it all work out, you know? Yeah. Uh, Taylor was like, Oh, why don't you go find the article? That'd be funny to read the article you interviewed me. And I was like, well, the thing of it is the newspaper didn't even have its own website. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Uh, we have a ton to get to today. I don't want to spend a lot of time on poker, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about poker because uh, you know, obviously, I I still like poker, and there was a time where I was playing a ton of poker. I know you were as well. I, I, I you know, when you were uh, at the top of the mountain, you know, taking on all comers. I'm curious what you think kind of gave you the confidence to go down the path of trying to win at the highest stakes, and what that time was like in poker, and kind of what made you uh, get out of it. Yeah, for sure, and, and honestly like it just kind of worked out by accident. I think like not unlike you getting into DFS and fantasy cause you liked it. Like I just really liked playing poker and I, I was broke and you know, like 16 years old, this is like before online poker really existed and you just started playing at home games. And you know, I had no idea that internet poker was going to happen and I happened to be pretty decent at it by the time internet poker happened just because I liked it. And I get pretty obsessive about stuff and uh, you know, it wasn't like I started out playing high stakes. It, you know, I started out playing really small stakes and after the course of like, you know, a year, year and a half, like had built up some money and it was a wild time. Like not unlike DFS, like five years ago, five plus years ago when like nobody knew what the hell was going on. And, you know, like a bunch of, it was basically like a bunch of kids making money and, and a bunch of like older people that don't, that did it as a hobby, like losing money that was just kind of what was happening. And um, I think I got pretty lucky, honestly, like I, I, I worked hard, but like, I mean, I'm looking back, I know I had to run good um, just because I like, I just know that I wasn't that sophisticated, but maybe relatively I was compared to a lot of people, but 
it could have gone the other way pretty easily. So, um, you know, and as far as why I got out of it, um, you know, I think I'm pretty good in general at recognizing when I have an edge at something. And I had started Card Runners um, just kind of on a whim, so like because I wanted to get some business experience and it was going really well. But I was focusing all my time on that. And you just can't be really great at doing a lot of things at the same time. So like by the time, like, I don't know, 2008, 2009 came around, like it was pretty clear I was more interested in the business. And frankly, I thought there was more potential in the business. And so I focused on it. Um, but I just sort of, you know, backed off playing a little bit at that point. And then by the time Black Friday came in 2011, you know, I was already on the way to starting a DFS site and just kind of kind of getting out of poker mostly. Yeah. I've talked about this before. I, I feel like one thing that um, was tough for me and, and I kind of regretted was like, man, when I, I, I was playing poker before black before uh moneymaker boom also. And when everything happened, I was like, Oh man, this is great. I'm gonna, uh, I'm just going to play and, and I'm going to win all the money playing and I'm going to put all my effort into playing. It never even like occurred to me that poker would be a billion dollar business industry. And, and, there was a way bigger ceiling and concentrating on the business side of thing. And same thing with DFS. You know, I didn't really learn my lesson. I, at first, I was just like, oh, this is great. I'm just going to play DFS and, and make all the money. And it took me a while to realize, actually, the ceiling is, is way bigger. And, and actually, you know, the stakes are way higher. And, and there's just more going on, I think, on the business side than, than straight playing. Even though I love, love, love playing so much and I still play DFS a ton. And I know you still play DFS uh, a ton. I'm curious, do you ever play poker at all anymore? Or, or do you miss it at all? Is there any ever a chance to play? Yeah, I played two weeks ago, 2-5 at the win, and uh, <laughs> was probably the biggest fish at the table. Uh, I'm kind of exaggerating, but like I, I was absolutely targeted by every pro at the table. And I think until people at least could tell I was confident. But um, yeah, I don't really play online at all. And I, I, I would play live if I was like kind of near a, a good game that I knew about. But, you know, I've got a kid now. I'm married. I've got a lot of stuff going on work-wise. So I just I don't have much time for it. Yeah. Okay, enough poker. That's old news. Let's get to uh, DFS. H how did you find DFS? Uh, when and where did, did you start playing? Uh, what was your introduction to DFS? Yeah, so I don't think very many people know this, but I was actually an investor in what I think is the first DFS site in 2007. And it was called Instant Fantasy Sports. Um, and it was started by a guy named Chris Fargis who actually works for DraftKings now um, and who was a, a former poker player. And I think all the investors or most of them were poker players at the time. And like, this was the craziest thing. In my mind, I was like, man, it's sit and goes, which is a poker game for fantasy sports. And they didn't have salary cap. And I was just like, this like can't possibly fail. Like in my mind, you know, being like dumb and young. And then it obviously didn't work out. And, you know, I think the idea was just too early at the time. And, you know, smartphones didn't even really exist at that time. Like, there's just such a crazy time. And, but in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, you know, there could be something here. And then, like, two or three years later, FanDuel, like, got started. And, you know, when I was running Card Runners, the training site at the time, like, we were, I think FanDuel reached out to us and wanted to, like, do a partnership or, like, have us become uh, promoting them or something. And we, of course, being young and dumb again, we were like, oh, well, why would we promote these guys when we could just, like, start our own daily fantasy site? And, like take over the world. And, um, you know, <laughs> we'll get into the details behind that, but, uh, that led us in 2010 to starting building draft day. Black Friday happened in 2011 when poker kind of never became the same again in the U S and basically got outlawed for, you know, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, and in mid 2011, we launched draft day, which at the time maybe was like the, I don't know, fifth or something daily fantasy site. Um, what made you think you could start your own DFS site? Because I, you know, like when I think of uh, challenges that come with stuff, it's like, man, I can't even fathom going state to state. And, and, and uh, I know at the time it wasn't about that, but like, I couldn't even fathom like all the legal issues that you knew would be, or at least you thought would be coming down the line and all the competition that you knew you would face. What, what made you think you could actually start your own uh, DFS site? Yeah, so a big part of it was just like being ignorant and overconfident. And I think you have to like put yourself in my shoes at the time. Like I had started playing poker with nothing and like became one of the highest stakes players. I'd started a business with no business experience and it had been really successful for, for some years. I, I honestly just thought it's like, okay, like if I work hard and like 
I'm really smart, so I can figure stuff out, and it's going to work. And of course, I knew there was a chance it wasn't going to work, but like I definitely underappreciated like the the what can go wrong, the risk, things like that. So that that's the biggest part of it. But at the same time, you know, I had learned a lot by playing poker and by really being in touch with like what players wanted at the tables and like gambling and really getting it, not just not just from the business side of like how to run it, but just like the product side. And I felt like FanDuel at the time was just not a great product. And, you know, some people still say that today about it or about certain parts of it. And we thought, okay, we can make a better site. And that, that was really the biggest reason. And, and I was completely unaware of like all the venture capital money that would have to be raised in order to be successful. And which we did raise some, but not nearly what, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel eventually did. And, and I was just ignorant. And, but at the same time, I was smart enough to like put it all together and get the site going and get traction. And like people that have been around in DFS at the time, like I think, I think most of the people were pretty impressed with the site we put together. It just never like reached commercial success, you know? So um, I'm proud of what we were able to do and, and I don't regret doing it except for like the stress and the, and the money we lost. But um, I, I learned a lot from it for sure. Uh, what happened? So people know what happened exactly to draft day. Yeah, so in I would say 2013-ish, we realized like DraftKings and FanDuel were just like rocket ships, primarily because they had raised a ton of money and were spending it. But they, I, I thought there's just no way we're gonna like beat them, and I felt like there was only gonna be one or two sites that that last that, that stuck around, and it was like a winner take all or winner take most market. So to to my credit, I just said to like Andrew and I just talked about it, and we were just like you know let's try to find a buyer for this. Like there can be like, we, we talked to all the big media companies and we almost got an acquisition from one of them that fell through. And then, you know, we were just like, you know what, let's just try to sell this to whoever will pay us the most and let's move on. And um, sometimes you have to quit while you're behind, you know? And I think that was a really good lesson for me that, you know, first of all, be very careful, like what markets you get into. But second of all, you know, be willing to fold, you know, if you need to. And, and we got out with, you know, not a, we lost money for sure, but and, and time, but it wasn't the end of the world. Um, okay. So once you sell draft day, you, you can uh, play DFS. Obviously, I think you stick mostly to the football streets, but I think you're, you're certainly qualified to talk about the state of DFS today. Um, and I want to spend some time on this because, you know, it's one of the most popular questions that that I get a lot. People want to know about what's going on with the state of the DFS industry. And there's a few different angles here. I guess the first one that we can talk about is like, you know, all, all this bitching from, you know, quote unquote pros and WPs. I call them WPs that want to be pros, you know, about uh, how tough the games are, you know, wah, wah, wah. And my point has always been that, you know, yeah, if you want to play 50K a slate, if you want to play 30K, 100K a slate, yeah, I got news for you, buddy. Uh, it's going to be tough. But for 99.5% of the field, you know, 99.9% of .9 people listening to this that are trying to play 50 or 100 or 500 bucks at most and have some fun and with an understanding of game selection, I think the games uh, are just fine. So uh, let's start there about the state of the competition in DFS. What's your take there? Yeah, for sure. And, and I think having gone through poker, like, has taught me a lot about this and, and, and having seen the same thing happen in DFS, like, it's not rocket science. What people saw in like 2000 and well, I'll say like 2014, 2015, because that people kind of refer to that as the glory, glory years of DFS. That's just not realistic. Like that, that's just the bottom line. If you're comparing anything to that time when like there is a ton of money flowing in, a ton of idiots playing and, or, or just people that don't even understand like the rules sometimes and are, you know, don't even, aren't, certainly aren't using projections or any sort of like paid analysis, you're, you're, you're making a mistake to, to have that as your baseline for anything. So um, that's the first thing. The second thing is like, first of all, I, or second of all, I still think there is decent money to be made playing DFS. The guys that are, you know, hoping to make millions a year, and there are still guys out there doing that. That's, you know, mostly a pipe dream. But like to, to make it be a profitable hobby where, you know, you get to watch sports, challenge yourself to, you know, try to beat people in a competition, which is fun like you can still make money doing it. And uh, I, I, I couldn't tell you the percentage of people. If I had to guess, I would, I would say there's probably over 5%, maybe less than 10% of people could be winning players. Um, if, if I had to ballpark it, you know, and there's 
hundreds of thousands of people playing DFS, if not maybe a, a million plus total, if you include like really casual people. So there's still a lot of room for a lot of people to make some money. Like that's just, that's just the bottom line. And then the, the final thing I think that people just keep forgetting is that if you could, if someone told you you could break even playing DFS, you know, p- paying for some content, playing the games, watching the game, watching the sporting events, like that's pretty fun. And like, I, I think you have, you have a chance for life changing money. And I think a lot of people, especially like, like DFS Twitter and gambling Twitter and, and don't get me wrong, these people have really good points and some of the things are completely um, fair and we'll talk about that. I just think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that it is a lot of fun to play DFS and like it shouldn't be something that's going to be easy because you're having a lot of people competing against you in something that's fun and potentially profitable and that just makes for an environment that's tough to make money. Yeah, I, I feel bad sometimes because not bad, but you know, I... I... Uh, you know, people who listen to me for the last five years or whatever, you know, I've obviously been partial to uh, not just playing like lottery style GPPs, like put up a little and try to win a million, right? I- I've been encouraging people to be more selective with their games and play cash. And I get that it's not that fun to turn 10 bucks, you know, into 18 or 50 into 90 or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I get that. For me personally, you know, I like to win and when we push people towards these really large field gpps well then it's like oh well you know you're you're playing fine but you're still uh you know only you're you're still really really likely to lose on this week so i don't know do you think i'm doing a a disservice to the industry by by telling people that the man's game is is cash and that uh the tournament stuff is just for people just trying to mess around and have fun no i i think your 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 heart is definitely in the right place with trying to like be fair to people and to and to not give them false you know expectations but look the the best piece of advice i would say is that if you want to do well at anything just go where there are people that don't know what they're doing and there is absolutely no doubt that the tournaments attract more people that are not really familiar with the best strategies or that's serious about dfs and and again that's not like a bad thing like these guys are enjoying having a good time playing at a very small chance at a long shot amount of money or a large amount of money. And, you know, for you to say, Hey, I like to grind. I like to just, you know, eke out a small edge. Like that's great for you because you are a grinder and you're really good at like assessing what the top plays are for every, you know, for anything. And I think most people it's hard, it's harder for them to do than it is for you probably, first of all. But the most important thing is just, there's more money when there are more fish and you know, I hate to even use the term like fish. It's just, these are people that are not pros playing just people that are recreational and the money has to come from somewhere. Um, so I think, I think if you're a player out there listening, you know, you have to think to yourself, like, what does DFS mean to me? You know, like, is it something that I want to like, do I want a small chance at a lot of money? Do I just want to like, try to compete to, uh, you know, find out what the, what the best possible team is for each, you know, each slate or each day. That's, that's more of like a cash game, cash game thing for, for finding the best team. But if you're looking at life changing money, obviously that's tournaments and your EV, your, your, your expected return is probably higher playing tournaments, but you're just going to have to go through prolonged stretches of losing to get yeah. there. So I, I don't really know how to say it. There's no right or wrong answer, but you, you got to think about it for yourself. Yeah, sure. And I always encourage people to figure out what their goals are, you know, but, but I do think that, you know, even in today's games with, you know, proper game selection, I think, you know, a realistic ROI for people should be, you know, I think people can win anywhere from like 7% to 15%. You know, obviously you're not going to be getting off 20K, 50K in a slate, but um, you know, I think a lot of people can, can strive to that. And and that's, it's just fun. I I like trying to figure out what the best team is. Um, and who's going to score the most points and not worry about other stuff. But anyways, that's just me. Not everybody has to play like me, uh, is I, I guess what my point is. Um, let's move to some of the kind of challenges the industry is facing. We can start with Bachelor Gate. Um, there is an overwhelming, I think, I, I don't know. I don't want to say consensus because, you know, the, the people who I think don't get it to some degree are, are often the loudest. But, you know, just from people, you know, casual people I meet on the street, they say, hey, I can't play. I, I don't want to play uh dfs to, you know people the the pros are putting in they, they can't lose they're putting in 150 lineups you know people just don't understand um the concept of mme they don't understand their single entry tournaments out there for them to play and then this bachelor gate thing was like the cherry on top where they could point to it and say 
hey, you see uh, the pros are uh, multi-accounting. They're using, uh, they're putting in 300. How could I ever win? You know, forgetting the fact that the guy who multi-accounted is probably losing players. So the more entries uh, that he puts in, the more likely he is to lose. But anyways, uh, what are your, what's your take on the current state of the challenges DFS is facing from a casual player perspective? Yeah, well, if, if putting in 150 lineups means you can't lose, then I certainly would like to have my money back from the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, think there, I think the problem is, is that there are just valid arguments on both sides. And like, there's no like, like God's not going to come down and like tell us what the right answer is. Like, you know, we don't, we don't have all the data, like even the DFS sites are making like informed judgments on what to do for policies and stuff without knowing for sure what the right move is. And, you know, I think the thing that I keep leaning on, like when I think about this is like, there needs to be rules that are understandable by people and then enforce. And like, I guess I go back to the idea that like, the fact that like a guy and his wife put in 300 lineups to the same tournament, that to me by itself is not necessarily wrong. Now, if this is a person that like doesn't play fantasy sports and like her husband just creates the teams and like enters them into the contest for her, well then I don't think that should be allowed. But like, what if I want to play with my wife on and you know, we both talk DFS, we both put together lineups you know, we both have a subscription to a site that, you know, generates lineups or, or, we, or we make them on our own. Like, should we both not be allowed to play in the contest? And I think, I think to me, if I was writing the rules, I would just say that anybody that plays has to make and submit the lineups on their own. And obviously, you know, you'd write it in a, this is a lawyer would write these rules, but like, you know, I don't think it should be against the rules for a husband and a wife to sit down and like legitimately play you know, 300 teams. Um, and even if, even if like one of them is more serious than the other, what if they're sitting at the same computer together and like saying, Oh, I really like this guy today. Let's move. Let's change his exposure or whatever. I just don't see anything wrong with that. And now the, the problem is, is I just, you know, you have to actually have people legitimately playing and that can be tough to prove, but poker sites have, have dealt with this forever with bots are a huge problem in online poker. And I know some of the sites have actually gone through and said, put a webcam on, start playing and I want to make sure that the, the account can actually play the same way that their that the, the hands have the their hand histories would dictate they played from past play. So what would be the problem with actually you know messaging an account from like say DraftKings does and says, look, we have some we have some suspicions about if you're actually using the account, we need you to sit down and like next time you're making lineups, put the webcam on and make them and, and just show us your process. And if they can't do it, then they're gone. And I, look, I know that's complicated. I know there might be some things I'm not considering, but I, I just I just feel like there has to be rules that are followed. But at the same time, it's not as simple as saying husband and wife can't play. Sure. No, I, I mean, husband and wife playing is not a problem. Skirting entry limits by multi-accounting is a problem, right? It seems pretty clear to me. Sure, but like, so is it, is it okay for a husband and wife to put in 300 on the same bankroll? If like, what is the differentiating factor of when that is okay and when it's not okay? Well, yeah, uh, of, of course, uh, you know, people are going to say that if the lineup, if there's no overlap in the 300 lineups, then obviously that they worked, that they worked from the same pool and, and they skirted the entry limit. You know what I mean? Cause otherwise you could have nine wives and then you'd have 150 times nine lineups. Well, sure. But like I, I talk to people every, almost every time I'm playing DFS, I'm talking to other people about ideas and plays and guys I like or don't like. And I don't see any problem if, if two people are actually building the teams together, meaning they're both working together, playing 300 teams because they're not going to want to play the same. They're using their own knowledge. But, but like that's different than going into a three-man contest and, and you know, differentiating their teams and, and kind of ganging up on someone in a three-man. So these are, in my opinion, incredibly nuanced things, and that's why it leads to really difficult – like rules or difficult difficulty enforcing the rules and creating the rules but i don't i just don't think it's clear what the right answer is yeah i think generally speaking you know a lot of people uh you know my myself included i was like oh you know i'm not into showdown you know when when DraftKings first released their format for xfl i was like oh this is brutal you know and and the the i think uh if you zoom out a bigger point is listen uh what's better for casual players is likely better for the industry as a whole. So like, it's not a coincidence that showdown is 
insanely popular. Obviously, there is an edge to be had for people who play Showdown well. However, uh, it's also smaller, I think, and it's just easier for casuals to make teams and they have fun with it. They only have to you know, know one game. They only have to have six roster spots. So it gets insanely popular. I mean, Showdown is like ridiculously popular. So uh, if you zoom out, instead of just like immediately bitching every time, you know, your ROI shrinks a little bit. If you are a winning player, think about the sustainability of the game and having casual people having fun playing. So, uh, you know, I, I try to never uh, complain and, and whine, at least uh, publicly, but I definitely wouldn't do it about stuff going on in DFS that's better for casual players. Uh, are you following what I'm saying, Taylor? Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's just complicated. Like, like the showdown example is great because like my friends from my season long league who two years ago, three years ago, were just crying about how DFS was unfair. And it was at the time the, 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 the narrative was, it was all algorithms winning. And like, yeah, I knew all the people that were like, or most of the people that were playing high stakes. And it was like, yeah, they might be using some, you know, like, like fantasy, you know, lineup creation sites or whatever, but these are like publicly available projections and like, it's not rocket science that's going into most of this stuff. And now of course the narrative is like, you know, collusion or entry limit skirting or whatever. But like the bottom line is these guys are playing showdown and they weren't playing for a couple of years. Showdown, in my opinion, brought people back into DFS and like, look, it's not great. Like for, for cash games, like it's not a great format, especially on DraftKings where they price the players like extremely accurately compared to their actual theoretical value. But like, you know, I just think that like it's in the best interest of people in the community to police things. And I think it's great that people make their voices heard. I think that does help at the same time being aware of the big picture that like the game depends on recreational players being a part of it is just something to keep in mind. And, you know, we all have to try to support the industry to the point where it, it can thrive. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the industry, there's been, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like there's some people who think that DFS is in decline, that um, the DFS market is shrinking perhaps at the expense of sports brain. Before we get into sports brain, though, I'm just, I'm just curious what you think of the the current state of DFS from a market perspective from a sustainability perspective yeah i think it's gonna just i think it's gonna keep getting harder for pros i mean like real pros that are like making their entire or most of their living from it but i don't see any reason to think that it's not going to be relatively similar for the guys that are playing you know like you said 10 bucks 50 bucks 100 bucks whatever on a slate that to me feels from a player's perspective, like it's basically how it is now is pretty much how it's going to be. As far as an industry's perspective, I mean, it's really fun. It's really popular. Um, the the DraftKings and FanDuel are going after the sports betting market, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And that's going to require them to go out and spend a lot of money on getting their brands out there in front of people and a lot of money on getting people to sign up for whether it's the DFS site or the sports betting app. And that's a good thing, you know, getting people that are engaged in the market playing, like, I, I just think there's some longevity in DFS. And I think like, I, I don't think the sky's falling and nor do I think there's going to be like sustained, like big growth or anything. Yeah. I mean, the thing for me is that, and we talk about DFS versus sports betting, people say, oh, you know, sports betting is just going to cripple the DFS games. Nobody's going to play DFS anymore. Everybody's going to play Everybody's going to sports bet uh, to me. And, and, you know, maybe I'm probably sicker than, than most people out there. But, you know, I know that winning a DFS it can be a lot of work. But, you know, I, I like to work. And it's just like it's more interesting to me to play against my peers, you know, in poker or in DFS than it is to try to beat some, you know, insanely liquid, insanely efficient market like sports betting. Now, that said, I, you know, I understand that sports betting is fun. Uh, because people can get a sweat on a game. You know, you can do like zero research on, on a sports bet and you'll win somewhere between like, I don't know, 47 and 53% of your bets, you know, over a reasonable sample. Like, of course, you're going to lose money, you know, in the long run because of the juice. But like, if you wait for the closing line and you just pick a side and bet, like you're not getting it in bad. Like it's almost impossible if you're in a, you know, a big market like NFL or, or NBA or whatever. But, you know, the thing to me is like, I like competing against my peers. I, I, fantasy to me is so much deeper. Um, and, and so I find it way, way more interesting. And I think there's a lot of people out there like me that actually prefer DFS to sports brand that, that think that they can actually, uh, or know they can actually win, 
Uh, whereas beating a market like the sports betting market um, is a really, really tall task. I don't think people understand how tall of a task it is. So um, what do you think about this whole sports betting versus DFS debate? And is sports betting going to eventually hurt the DFS market? Yeah, well, I mean, if, you, if you're a DFS player and you think that it's unfair or, or it's bad out there with how tough the DFS games are, then don't go and try sports betting. Because if you think like, quote unquote, syndicates in DFS are a big problem, which, you know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, that sports betting by its nature, that is exactly how it works. There's no like, like limits on the amount that one, one piece of information could, could find its way into the market. Like, this is what's going on. There are groups of people that have great information that are really talented and are betting lines across the world to get them to the point where they are efficient or fair or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, for better or worse, DFS, like there is much less of that. You know, it's just much harder. It's much more enforced. It's just a, it's just a more inefficient market. So like that's, of course, sort of an aside. But like, like I don't think sports betting, ex the expansion of sports betting legally is going to make, you know, the fantasy sports players want to play fantasy sports less. Will there be some players that maybe because they, you know, can get a sports bet really easily and, you know, it's easier maybe trend a little more towards sports betting. Yeah, I definitely think that will happen, but I think that will be mitigated by the amount of money that will be spent on the, the fantasy brands that kind of some people forgot about, you know, for the last two or three years that just weren't as prominent after all the, the scandals that went down. And I, I just, I guess I just see DFS as just different and it, it's kind of like prop betting or it's like, it's a combination of fantasy and prop betting and then game theory and, you know, it's a really complex game because, you know, for example, in basketball, if the starting point guard's out and, you know, there's a backup coming in and playing, like, that shifts the entire, like, landscape of a slate. Like, and, and different players have different values and, you know, they may not move the spread very much, but they're going to move the entire DFS slate in a way that is, like, super complicated. And that's, like, that's something that like is just a different concept than exists in sports betting. And I think there's just different strokes for different folks. And um, I don't see that going away. Yeah. I mean, the, the argument would be that DraftKings and FanDuel are just using DFS now uh, as a vehicle to convert sports bettors, right? Like they don't care that much about DFS. And I don't think this is true, actually. I mean, we both know people at DraftKings and FanDuel. I don't think this is true, but I think that's the assumption that, hey, they, they've forgotten about DFS. This is just a vehicle for them to get sports betters, you know, and, and similarly, I guess, you know, there's a lot of content sites out there that think, oh, well, you know, we, we have some fantasy players on our site. Now we're just going to be uh, these massive affiliates and, and stuff like that for sports books. Um, I, I think that there is still more than enough people that are like me, that are like us, that just love, love, love fantasy. And I don't think that DraftKings and FanDuel have any intention of, of kind of letting their DFS products uh, fall off the wayside. Uh, but maybe you see it differently. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I, I, the, the short answer is I don't really know. And I think, I think reasonable people could disagree. I guess I would say if I was them and I had a really big amount of large amount of customers that were clearly like gambling, playing on something that's legal across the country before sports betting is legal. I, I personally would want to be doing everything I could to foster that ecosystem make sure that it was still, you know, an attractive product for, for those customers. And then of course I'd be upselling them sports betting and casino once it's legal in the States that it becomes legal in. But I just don't see why I wouldn't want to keep both of them there because, you know, it's, it's kind of an unfair advantage that the DFS sites have to be honest with you against the other people in the sports betting and casino market. Like they have a product that is fun for some people offers big payouts and, you know, they can market that across the country. And I guess I just, I just don't really, and, and I don't know, honestly, you, they, those, the naysayers could completely be right. But like, if I was them, I, I would really be trying to keep the, the DFS ecosystem alive and well. Um, all right, let's talk about sports betting for a little bit. You have uh, another unique thing on your resume, this, this sports book director for Rush Street Gaming. For you guys that don't know, Rush Street Gaming uh, owns a bunch of casinos. They own one here in Philadelphia, formerly known as Sugar House. What's it now? Like Bet Rivers or something like that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. First, let's, uh, I guess, uh, before we get into the, the tougher questions, I'm, I'm curious what your 
experience was like as a sports book director for Rustry. Why don't you let people know what what your kind of role was and and what you thought about working on the other side of the counter, whereas you know you've been a, a poker player and a DFS player uh, and a DFS operator now as a sports book director. What was that like? Yeah, it's funny. People when I talk to people about this, they think I was like the guy at like the counter, like taking the tickets and like yeah. I don't know, like just moving the lines and stuff. And it certainly wasn't anything like that. Um, I, I like the role that I had was um, overseeing with a group of people, but but being part of that group. Um, the rollout of online sports books um, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and then kind of heading up the team that um, provided services to the retail, which are brick and mortar sports books. And like you said, in Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh, and then uh, Rush Street has some, some more partners now since, I, since I've uh, left. But, um, you know, it, it was basically like early days of online of sports betting in the U.S. and, and just working with the company that was trying to offer those products um, to, to customers. And it's from anything from, you know, marketing partnerships or um, kind of branding or customer acquisition or um, just really, it was, it's a startup still. I mean, there's the, all of these companies are still startups, arguably even DraftKings and FanDuel. And, you know, just doing anything you can to push the, the, the company and the site forward um, was what I was doing. And it was an awesome experience because, you know, first of all, uh, Rush Street Interactive is the name of the company, not, not Rush Street Gaming, but um, Rush Street is an awesome company and first class people, like really great to work with people that had like a lot of like experience in regulated gambling where I was sort of just always on kind of an outsider. Um, and like learning from people that are smarter than you is always something that I would tell people is a great idea. Um, and you know, dealing with like regulators and stuff too, not that I was the direct person dealing with them, but, but hearing about how like you have to follow the rules in a certain way. And if one like word is off on like a, you know, an advertisement or you don't have enough space dedicated towards like problem gambling messaging, just, there's like a thousand different little rules that like people on the outside don't think about and just kind of learning about that. And honestly, just, just sort of like having a level of, um, uh, attention to detail and sort of um, just doing the right thing all the time and, and, and every little detail matters was just a really good takeaway that I had from, from working there. Um, and, I, and I still work part-time for them too. I'm, I'm something of a consultant for them now, I guess, but um, I'm not full-time in the role because I'm with ETR. Uh, okay. The big thing on sports, on sports band that everybody seems like the hot button issue is people getting cut off. Right. And it's funny to me because this doesn't apply. I mean, 99% of people, are not going to get cut off. But I understand where people are coming from because they say, well, you know, if I ever get good, if I work really hard at this and I get really good at sports betting and I'm actually a winner, I'm, I'm a winner via line origination or I'm a winner via, you know, uh, picking off bad lines or, or comparing lines, board sweeping or, or whatever you want to call it. Well, they're just going to cut me off and tell me, uh, you know, to hit the road or they're going to limit me to $25 a bet or $10 a bet. Uh, or whatever, and, and so people get tilted, and I get that. They say even even though I understand I'm never going to be a pro, it won't even they won't even give me a chance to aspire to be a pro, right? And a lot of I think a lot of poker and DFS aspirational, right? They want to be the next green plastic, you know. They want to be you know Peter Jennings or in DFS or, or or whatever it is, right? And there's so much aspirational about it. And then the thing is, you can't really. It's hard to aspire to be the next I don't know Rufus Peabody or whatever when you try to start winning, and the next thing you know. The whole game is just getting action. It's not even uh, making bets. It's finding someone to actually take your bets. So I know you've been on both sides of the counter. Do you understand where people are coming from about the frustrations of getting, uh, of seeing other people even getting limited and or cut off? Yeah, for sure. This is one that like I think is a perfect example of like there are really reasonable arguments on both sides, and like the the what's right is just hard to figure out. And and like okay, you can look at like the people that are upset that they cannot bet on uh, make a sports bet because they've been limited by sites. Well, I mean, the bottom line is these guys are really good and they're, they're beating the house long-term without question. That's the reason they're, they're pros. That's by definition, they're taking money from the casino with every bet or they're expecting to win with every bet they make. And you can say, okay, well, that's just the cost of running a sports book. I think that's a fair, fair point. However, none of the online sports books are profitable at this point. And I think people forget 
or, or, or just aren't aware of the expenses and the headaches that go into running the sites, into paying for the gambling license, paying you know data fees to the sports leagues, and all the costs that go into it. Sports betting is a really low margin business as it is. I mean, we just you talked a few minutes ago about how low edge it is in general, and everything's basically a coin flip, and you know the vig is pretty small. That that really adds up to you know books are making really good money on parlays. And they're making very minimal money overall on, on singles. And a big part of this is because there are sharp players out there. And, you know, you, you, you look and you go, okay, and I can see someone saying, well, so what? Like, that, that's just what happens when, you know, you offer a service, you need to let people play. Well, I mean, that's not how it works in blackjack in a casino. Everybody accepts that if you're counting cards, you're going to get kicked out of the casino. And do, is sports betting exactly the same as blackjack? No, definitely not. But at the same time, I don't think it's unreasonable for a site to say, look, we cater to recreational sports fans and, you know, that's our business model. If you're a pro, you can have really small limits or you can go somewhere else. I I get how that doesn't play well and how some people don't like that. At the same time, like I saw firsthand how expensive it was to operate these companies and how they're all losing money. And, you know, you might say, okay, well, in five, 10 years, they'll be making money when all this irrational exuberance is out of the market, whatever. That may be true, but it's certainly not true right now. So I, I don't really know where, I, I, I honestly, I see it from both sides. I'm sympathetic to professional gamblers, um, but I think people need to understand that this isn't just some money press like everybody thinks it is. Sure. I, I think there, it rubs, uh, I mean, it rubs people and, and probably rubs me the wrong way too. It's like, oh, well, uh, we're only going to take action from people who are going to lose. You know, it just doesn't seem American. You know what I mean? And I get that it's the same way in blackjack. I would never, it makes me sick to, when I walk through a casino, like I actually get a bad feeling in my stomach because it pains me to watch people uh, play blackjack. Um, but anyways, this is, this is, I don't even want to spend too much more, any more time on this. Uh, I'm curious uh, where you think things go in the sports betting market. Um, obviously I think DraftKings and FanDuel, to me at least, are ahead from a tech perspective and from a kind of lead into the state's perspective. A lot of these states already have DFS players. They have huge databases of people who play fantasy football, and we know that or play DFS football or any DFS sport. And obviously, these people are extremely, extremely likely to bet on sports also. So um, to me, though, a lot of it's just a tech thing. Like, you know, my friends, they want to bet on the site that uh, has the best app and the site that pays them the easiest and the quickest uh, if they win and, and has the best promotions. Like that's pretty much it. Um, but I'm curious what you think, how it plays out in the industry side of the sports betting game. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, anybody that's been paying attention knows that DraftKings and FanDuel have an advantage from with their database and their brand being recognized. But I think it's still a long, long game of, you know, you're gonna see more people from Europe getting involved. You're seeing com- companies from the US that have casinos in the US that have a large footprint or have a footprint in states with a lot of people in them. Like this is, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel had like a six year head start on everybody else basically. And, you know, I just see it like in, if you're looking out in 10 years or I mean, God forbid 20 years, like it would not surprise me at all if, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel were in the mix, but not the market leader. Um, or it would even, wouldn't even surprise me at all if, if one of them wasn't around anymore, um, as crazy as that sounds, um, because I think there's just like so much that can happen. And, you know, I, I just think it's too early to call and, and great that people are competing. To, these sites are competing because it's going to be good for the players. All right. Before we wrap up here, we got to bring it full circle. Obviously, uh, Taylor has a ridiculous resume out of this big job at the sports book, uh, et cetera, et cetera, at a time when. When sportsbook were set, seemingly set up, uh, ideally, you know, Taylor's played the biggest stakes, everything, hashtag how rich. So the people want to know why, why Taylor invest all this time and energy into establish the run, the world's, if I do say so myself, the world's preeminent fantasy football website. One of the world's smallest fantasy websites. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, I, I, I think like the, the, Best answer is I've learned like when you get the chance to work with like really, really good people, you should take it like no matter what it is. And that's not to say I wasn't before, but like you, you and Evan are like, honestly, the, in my opinion, the top two fantasy analysts out there and to have a chance to work with you guys and build a team that's only like 
you know, quality over quantity, which is what we're doing. Um, and, you know, really try to put out a, a high end product. And that, that was the first thing. And I, I also really like fantasy and DFS. So that really, really helps. But um, I think the other thing that I noticed, and I'm, I'm learning, thinking about this more as time goes on, I think we're heading more towards where like premium content on the internet is even more and more, more valuable because there's so much crap out there. And like we're entering a time where it's like, you know, if you, if you Google something, the stuff that comes up is just like whoever's the best at like gaming Google. And like, this is not just like for gambling. This is just like anything. And I think people are really like starving for like trustworthy sources. They're willing to pay for them. And I guess I just feel like getting in with a group of people that are like super legit and, and like at the top of what they do just is, is a good place to be. And I also think like sports betting is getting all these headlines and rightfully so, but like season long fantasy and DFS, especially season long fantasy, like there's such a bright future for it. Like it's just, it's just so fun and there's a lot of money floating around. And I think a lot of people are probably going to be willing to like invest in, in some of the stuff that we hope to create. And I don't know, I'm just happy to, to be in early and, and just see where it goes. And, and that's, that's kind of why I, why I joined on. Yeah. Um, you know, I was uh, honestly like somewhat skeptical that Evan and I even needed a kind of business person to do this with us. You know, like, oh, it's not that complicated. We'll do some podcasts. Uh, we'll do some articles. And, you know, it, it'll it'll take off from there. Uh, I have uh, since learned that, I mean, every day, Taylor uh, and Andrew and I are spending so much time on the back end going through like every little a business decision and there's there's in like people would be like shocked like what goes on behind the scenes i guess is what i'm trying to say so uh my skepticism has been proven to be uh foolish and and having someone uh with taylor's experience i think has made a huge difference so anybody out there who thinks they're just gonna you know pop it off and and start putting some stuff on a website and start printing um maybe that would be true in the short term i think in the long term the business side of stuff is is way more complicated than than it appears to the user, and even appeared to me when I was, you know, working on uh, at sites and stuff like that. Um, if that makes sense, I don't know if you found the same thing, Taylor. Yeah, for sure. And I think, like, you know, you and Evan had talked for years about wanting to do something, and you know, I think like you guys were originally thinking like kind of small, you know, just like make it, make it so we can, you know, make a living and and just have it be very, very, very simple. Like, you know, you doing a podcast and Evan writing a column or something. And, you know, when we started talking about this and when, you know, to your credit, you, you kind of realized or you felt like you wanted to have somebody like running the business side, like we, we have a bigger vision, you know, and like, like it's still relatively small compared to a lot of other fantasy sites. Like Establish the Run is not going to offer every single like, you know, article or product or projection or whatever, but like we, we can make it much more than just like two guys like creating content. And, you know, I, yeah, I think that that's right. And I think like doing well in business is hard work and it's, and it's fun though too. So, you know, it's been, it's been super fun to, to be a part of it. Yeah. And, and last thing that, you know, Taylor mentioned about the, the uh, premium side and the way uh, internet content is going. I, I'm totally sick of people just putting up stuff to get clicks. Right. And like, there's so many people, all they care about is, Oh, can I get clicks? Will this get interactions? I'm only going to post this, you know, I'm going to post this in a way that gets uh, clicks. I'm going to post this in a way. I'm only doing this to get interactions. I don't. I don't even. It doesn't even matter what I say in this in this tweet or in this video or in this in this article. It's just, is it going to get clicks? And is this headline uh, going to get clicks? I'm so. I've been so against that for so long. I've always believed that. Uh, you know, if you actually do good stuff, then people will find it. And I think it's becoming more and more so in the internet today. You know, you see it with the athletic, and you see it with other sites being able to charge. Um, money for good content because people are just sick of all the click bullshit that that is out there so big priority for us is to not be clickbait whores to actually put out the good stuff um put out the best stuff and people will find it and recognize it and most importantly be willing to pay for it you know because you can go around and you can find all this clickbait nonsense from people who don't know what they're talking about or just know how to write a good headline etc um but those people you're not actually going to gain value from it. So yeah, that, that would be my thing, you know, about the, about the, uh, premium side of it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, anything else on, on why it's good 
good the internet is changing for good there's so much negativity on the internet i feel like there is going to be like an evolution of the internet where there's actually good on the internet yeah for sure no i'm every i get made fun of constantly because i'm like a huge optimist like about the world and i think it's just getting so much better and we don't need to go into that here but um i, I guess just thinking about establish the run you know we charge a subscription fee so that, that we don't have to, we, we can do what we think is the right thing content wise always. We don't have to worry about like selling ads. We don't have to worry about even affiliate revenue or we haven't done anything. I mean, I think we, we, I think we might've like generated like three signups for DraftKings or something like that. Cause all of our customers are, they tend to already be on the fantasy sites and you know, that's great. But like we're, we're just focused. If, if people pay us money, then we have our own discretion to determine what is best for them and as far as like doing better at DFS and fantasy. And I just don't think most sites, you know, that's not the business model that the free sites or, or sites that have charge a very small amount of money have because they have to figure out how to generate revenue other ways. And the business model is also different because they're paying, you know, people that are not really that, you know, knowledgeable, small amounts of money to create the content. Whereas we have, you know, like some pretty heavy hitters, you know, guys like yourself and Evan that are like full time. This is all they do. They've spent a decade plus learning and you know, it, it's just a different model. And I, I'm just really optimistic about it. Yeah. Shout out to us. Uh, okay. <laughs> One of our goals for the off season is to get you guys more free content on YouTube. Go to establish the run. Establish the Run's YouTube page. I'll put a link in the description. Please hit subscribe and you'll get to know, you'll get to see all the videos. We'll be doing a bunch with Evan on free agency. We'll be doing uh, a bunch of off-season stuff as we get ready for best ball season, NFL draft, NFL free agency, et cetera, et cetera. Also, if you go to establishtherun.com, now you can get in on our XFL package. XFL kicks off on February 8th. I have spent most of the last two weeks, uh, pathetically, or I guess sadly, uh, researching XFL and getting up to speed for kickoff uh, on Saturday. DFS action is going to be big. Uh, both sites have gone 300K and 350K guaranteed on their big GPPs. And just like the edge in niche sports like this is just going to be so massive uh, out of the gate. Uh, we'll have depth charts. We'll have a live show. Uh, we'll have plenty more uh, content, top plays, plenty more content. For XFL, you can go to the site and find it uh, there. And we'll be back later this week, actually, with Evan for his first look at kind of a free agency overview, look at some of the unrestricted free agents that are coming uh, to a market for an NFL team near you this spring. So I hope you guys enjoyed this industry-centric podcast for Taylor, for producer Luke, for Jerry. I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.